Hello, friends, and welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Church at Grow Farm. One of our goals here at CCGF is to help you take your next step toward Jesus and the person God designed you to be. We hope our sermons help you to take that next step. If you would like more information about the community here at Christ Church at Grow Farm, or if you would like to contact us, you can do all of that and more on our website, which is ccgf.org. And to get an even further taste of who we are, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Now, here is this week's message, grace and peace to you. What a special day in the life of the church. This has only happened, we've only had this kind of day a few times in the 25 years that we've existed. In fact, someone pointed out to me that the Reverend Dr. John Guest was actually never formally installed as senior pastor and rector here. So I have, I have a new title for him. He's no longer minister at large. He's the rogue pastor. <laughs> All these years, John. All these years. No, John and parish council and church, it is a great honor to be called to serve as a pastor here, your senior pastor. I'm very thankful and I'm excited about what's ahead of us in the next years, right? It's a good thing. So thank you for this day. It's been a wonderful, wonderful day. I'm very excited. Finally official, finally official. Uh, we're, we're eager to see what the Lord has for us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this day. And it is a momentous day in the life of our church. It's a milestone day, Lord, and it's for the entire church. And Lord, as we gather on this day and we talk about uh, the leadership of the church, we're reminded that you are the true leader of the church. You are the head. And so, Lord, we surrender ourselves to Jesus all together as your people. Father, thank you for the work that we get to be a part of, not only within these walls, but outside these walls. And we pray, God, there would be more and more of that work as a part of your kingdom building ministry. Use us to that end, God. And now, Lord, we pray that you would teach us. Open the eyes of our hearts. We want to know you. We want to see you more clearly. We love you, God, and we ask all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. amen. So we're in the second week of a series that we're calling Worship Outside the Box. And I put before you last week uh, a key verse for the series. It's Romans 12.1. I want to put it on the screens now and put it before you. And by the way, I'm going to have a lot of scriptures in this message today. So write these down. And you can go back to these throughout the week. And look at these and consider what God is saying to us as a body here at Christ Church. Here's Romans 12.1, a good starting point for us, I believe. Scripture says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Man, what a powerful verse. We could spend weeks just teaching on that alone. And it certainly points us to the fact that, as we've been saying, church is way bigger than just Sunday. That our faith experience is bigger than an hour, once a week, gathered in a building. It also reminds us that a life of worship is not something that's meant to be contained in a box. But we're called to be people who worship God everywhere with all of our lives, in spirit and in truth. 
Now, based on what things I've heard in the commons after services and even during this week, I sense that we have intellectual agreement about the fact that we're called to be people who worship God in spirit and truth. Amen? We're agreed in that. We also agree that church, that who we are in Christ is much bigger than just Sunday. Amen? We got intellectual agreement. We're all on the same page there. But I also think this is true. I believe that it's much harder to walk out a life of being a worshiper, of worshiping God in spirit and truth, of being the church on an everyday basis. It's really easy to nod our heads and say yes and say amen, but I find it difficult, and I'm sure you do also, to actually put it into practice when we go into the world. Let me ask you a question. How do we do this? I mean, how do we do this? How do we live a life of worship? How do we live out our faith? Especially when we consider that many of us spend much of our week in the workplace. Now, there's a question. How do you live out a life of faith in the workplace? A lot of you want to know the answer to that one, don't you? Or if you're a student, how do you live out a life of faith? How do you worship in spirit and truth in school? especially with all those homework assignments you got to work on, right? How, how do you live out a life of faith in the context of your community? These are big questions, and they're important questions. And I believe they're questions that the Scriptures have answers for us to point us towards. But I also know this. It's a tension that's existed for hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, that's going to take us to our boxes today. Because I want to give you a historical tour very quickly and show you that this tension that you feel about living out your faith and how you do that in the context of everyday life is something that's existed for hundreds and hundreds of years in the lives of believers. So let's go to our boxes here. Um, tell you what, I could, I could use that sword to open up these boxes if I had it in there. It'd be handy, right? Big knife. We got some boxes here, and we're going to take a look at a couple of things from the history books. The first thing I want to present to you is something that's known as triumphalism. Triumphalism, big word. This is something that was marked in the times that we call medieval. These are the years 500 through 1500 approximately. And during that time, the church gravitated towards something called triumphalism. Now, triumphalism was especially exemplified by the Catholic Church during these years, during medieval, medieval times. In fact, if you were to look at the Catholic Church in those days, they believed that there was no separation, no separation between the church and the state, that they were one. You see, triumphalism was something that, that really was concerned with the public image of the church. And so the Catholic Church worked hard to maintain an incredibly squeaky clean image. And that meant that there were cover-ups sometimes. There were problems that plagued the church. But public image was a really important thing in triumphalism. And triumphalism also, this was important, that the church controlled the public sector, that the, the church controlled public services. It was all under the banner of the church. And so a word that you could associate with triumphalism, is the word conquest. Conquest. That's how the church was embracing and, and engaging the culture 
It was saying, we're going to dominate the culture. So there's one bit of history for you. This is a way that Christians have engaged the culture. This is a way that, that Christians have sought to live a life. Conquest. And we see that exemplified when we think about triumphalism. Now, there's more. Because there's another camp, there's another piece of history we can look at that will give us another sense of how the church has sought to engage culture throughout history. Now, this one isn't triumphalism. No, on the other hand, we have what would be known as the Radical Reformation. Now, some of you may have heard of the Reformation of Martin Luther. This came on the heels of that. Actually, as a response to that, we had the Radical Reformation. And the Radical Reformation happened in the 1500s, not too far after the, the time of triumphalism. And the church that was, was most closely associated with the Radical Reformation were the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists. Now, the Anabaptists are modern-day terms, the Mennonites or the Amish, those kind of groups. So think that. And with them, they weren't so much interested in conquest. They were interested in different things. For instance, when it came to the church and the state, while the triumphalists believed in no separation between church and state, those who were part of the Radical Reformation, they believed in separation. They wanted the state and the church to have nothing to do with one another. Opposite corners. Also in these times, you would see that while the triumphalists were interested in keeping a, a squeaky clean private um, image, that these people wanted to do nothing with the public life, that the radical reformers rather wanted to have a private life that was sanitized. They were interested in personal disciplines and drawing themselves close to God through their personal disciplines. Not only that, they sought to reject public services. Those who were in the medieval times in the church, in the Catholic church, they sought to control the public services. Nope, not the Anabaptists, not the people who are part of the Radical Reformation. Instead, they sought to reject public services. They wanted to separate themselves. So while the word here is conquest, the word here, the word that exemplifies the way that the church was engaging culture is reclusive. They sought to totally separate themselves from secular life and live in a way that was apart from whatever was happening in the culture. Do you see? These are two ways that historically the church has sought to engage the culture. On one hand, you have people say, we're going to dominate the culture. We're going to have conquest. On the other hand, you have people who say, no, we're going to separate ourselves from the culture. We actually see this still exemplified today in the church. I have a few more boxes to show you. So we have today our own boxes, okay? On one hand, you have religious separatists. You have religious separatists. Religious separatists would say this about the culture. They would say it's an issue of us, the believers, versus them. That there is a war going on. You know, this is interesting to point out. Our war is not against flesh and blood, is it? Our war is against powers and principalities. The religious separatists, they say, no, no, it's us versus them. The religious separatists will also say this. They will say that they want to create their own subculture, that they want to have their own entertainment, 
They want to have their own apparel lines. They want to have their own institutions. Heck, they want to even have their own breath mints. Did you know in the 90s there was something called testaments? You could buy them at Christian bookstores. The Christian separatist says, your breath mints aren't good enough for me. We've got to have Christian breath mints. That's what this looks like. The Christian separatist says this, we want uniformity in our life. In other words, we want people who are just like us to surround us. People who think like us. People who look like us. People who dress like us. We want to have uniformity. And finally, the Christian separatist. The religious separatist says this, that the world is ultimately evil. And the viewpoint of the world, it's an evil, evil world, and we want to be separate from it. Can you think of Christians that you know who would fit into that box? Do you find yourself fitting into that box? Well, there's another box if you don't fit in that one. And this box isn't the religious separatist. This is what I would refer to as civil religion. Civil religion. So the religious separatist says it's us versus them. The, the civil religion people say, no, us is greater than them. The Christian is meant to dominate whatever is happening in the world and control it. The, 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 the people who endorse civil religion want to censor the world. They want to censor the arts. The people who are part of the civil religion movement say, we want not uniformity, we don't want to surround ourselves with people who are just like us. We just want everyone to conform to what we're doing. We want conformity, that everyone would think like us, and we're going to impose our will on them. And ultimately, the people who subscribe to civil religion would say this. They would say, what we need to be is a Christian nation. This is what those who endorse civil religion would say. Now, these are boxes. You see the historical boxes. Those of, of the Anabaptist and the Catholic Church in the 1500s, and then you see what we have here today. This is a struggle that has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. We tend to gravitate towards these boxes. And let me say this, there are some good things about these boxes, good things. In fact, you may find yourself aligning with one of these boxes, or at least some aspect of these boxes. Here's the thing I'm saying. The thing that I would suggest is that while there are some good things about these boxes and the way we engage culture and the way we approach life as Christians, Jesus has something better for us. He has something better for everyone who believes in his name. And listen, this is Jesus we're talking about. Jesus, who didn't come as a military figure. Jesus, who didn't come as a political figure. Jesus, who wasn't a monk. Jesus, who was a carpenter and was a friend of sinners. That Jesus calls us to something much greater when it comes to living a life of worship, engaging our world with the gospel. And that's what I want to show you here today. So let me take you right now to the text, the main text, which is 1 Peter 2.9. You might want to underline this one because this is the key text today. Just one verse that I believe has insight for us into how we can live a life of worship outside the box, outside of being either a separatist or someone who's endorsing civil religion, but instead living in another way. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 
Let me read this verse for you again. You heard it earlier when Brian read it. The scripture says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's take apart this scripture and look at it piece by piece. First thing we need to know is this, who is Peter addressing? Who's he writing to here? He makes it very clear to us. He gives us three markers that tell us who he's talking to. The first thing he says is that we are a chosen race. Did the Bible just say race? Yes, it did. Is it talking about the Jews? No, not necessarily talking about just the Jews. Let me take you back to the book of Ephesians, which you were with us in January. You know that we studied Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read you just a few verses or a few sentences from from chapter 2 of Ephesians. Here's what the scripture says. It says his purpose, the purpose of Jesus, was to create in himself one new humanity. Out of the two, out of the Jew and the Gentile, one new humanity, thus making peace. You see, Jesus came to make a new human race. Through his body broken on the cross, through his blood shed as he was nailed to the cross, Jesus created a new human race. And so when Peter says that you are a chosen race, he's not talking about just Jews. He's not just talking about Gentiles. He's not talking about Caucasians. He's not talking about African Americans. He's not talking about Asian Americans or Latino Americans. He is talking about all people who believe in Jesus. You're a holy nation, he says. He goes on. He says, not only are you a chosen race, rather, he says you are a holy nation. A holy nation. Now, we know exactly what he means here, and you'll see here in a moment. How many of you are Steelers fans? Of course, most of you are Steelers fans. And you know this if you're a Steelers fan. Steelers fans travel better than any other fans in the NFL, don't they? I mean, we go out to Los Angeles to play the Chargers. It's a mob of Steelers fans out in California. We go out to Arizona to play the Cardinals. It's a mob of Steelers fans in Phoenix. Heck, we play the Bengals in their home stadium for 20 years straight. The poor people of Cincinnati have hardly had a home game against the Steelers because Steelers fans travel so well, right? Yeah, yeah they do. They do. We travel well. Now, when, he, when Peter says that we are a holy nation, it's kind of the same thing. It's a nation without borders. Just like Steelers nation is a nation that's not just enclosed to Pittsburgh, but it spreads all across the country, more so. The people of God are a holy nation. It's Jesus' nation. And Jesus' nation has no geographical borders. And Jesus' nation has no time borders and constraints. It spans all of that. And it encompasses all the people who are united through their shared allegiance to Jesus Christ. So he's talking to this group of people who are a chosen race. He's talking to this people who are a holy nation. And then he says this. He says that we are a people of God's own possession, his own possession. Let me point to you what this means. I love to show you how Scripture endorses Scripture. How do we understand Scripture? Through Scripture. So let me take you to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, looking at part of verse 19 and part of verse 20. You'll see here that it says that you are not your own. 
Christian, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You see, we are people of God's own possession. We belong to him. He bought us. You might say, well, what's the currency? <laughs> how, did he, how did he purchase us? How did he buy us? The currency is the blood of Jesus Christ. You and I have been bought at a price by God, and it's an incredibly high price. And we are precious to him. He bought us. We're people of his possession, and it's only through Jesus' blood. Let me ask you a question. Have you been bought by him? Have you been bought by God? I mean, are you a person who is purchased by the blood of Jesus? Are you someone who is sold on Jesus? I put that before you today. Even in your heart and your mind right now, as you sit here, would you consider that question? Are you purchased by God? Do you believe in Jesus and His atoning sacrifice? Because it's only by Him that we could be a part of this group of people that Peter's referring to. He says, listen, you're a holy nation. You're a chosen race. You are the possession of God. And who is he talking to? He's talking to anyone who calls themselves a Christian. If you believe in Jesus, if you trust in him, then this message is for you. Let me get your attention with this. It's a familiar verse. It's one you've heard many times. Listen, it's for us. And let me tell you what it is that Peter is pointing out to us. He's saying, you're a holy nation. You're a chosen race. You've been bought by God. And here's what that means. That means that you are a part of a royal priesthood. That's what he says. You're a part of a royal priesthood. Well, some of you are like, hey, you're the one who got up there with the sword and the Bible and had John Guest pray for you. You're the priest. No, no, no. We are all priests. You see, here we are in a day where we install the new pastor, where we acknowledge what God has done. And it's a really special moment. But the truth of the matter is, is that we should have all y'all up here. Everyone. Because we, together, are a royal priesthood. Not just the ones who have pastor before their name in the bulletin. We are all called to be people who are priests. Now, in the Old Testament, the priests were the worship leaders. You know, we had Marcus up here. Oh, he's still here. Hey, Marcus. <laughs> Scared me. <laughs> we've got Marcus here and Marcus is a worship leader we have Brad up here earlier he's not here we had Brad up here earlier we had the worship team gathered love that we have such a great worship team in the days of the Old Testament for the Jewish people the priest was the worship leader the priest was the person who led people in a procession before God what does this mean to us if we're a royal priesthood? It means that we too are called to be worship leaders. We're called to live a life of worship outside the box. So listen, we are all to live as if we are priests and all of life is a temple. It's not something that we separate from the culture on. It's not something where we just, we just enforce our will and there's conquest. It's neither of those things. It's outside the box. We are called to be priests. Let me tell you what it looks like to be a priest. 
Let's go to the Old Testament and think about the image of a priest. You see, priests are visible ambassadors. No one has seen God. Even Moses, who asked and begged to see God, didn't get to see God fully. And so we cannot see him. But the priest, in both Old Testament times and even now, the priests are people who carry the presence of God. You are a priest. And therefore, you have been called to carry the presence of God, to be a visible sign of God wherever you go. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.20. Another one of these verses you can write down and revisit this week. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God was making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Listen, you and I are the hands and feet of Jesus. We are people who are visible ambassadors. People can't see God, but they can see you. And they can see the image of God in you. So what does it mean to be a priest? It means to be someone who carries the life of Jesus, the life of God in you wherever you go. Here's a second marker of what it means to be a priest. Priests offer the praise of their lips and the works of their hands to God. Another scripture, Hebrews 13, says this. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. You see, the Old Testament priests, they offered sacrifices. We are called to be priests who offer sacrifices. What are those sacrifices? We are messengers of God with our mouths. We share the gospel. We tell the stories of God in our lives. We affect people by, by telling them what God has done in our lives. Do you see it? This is what a priest does. And what else does a priest do? A priest does good. Does good works. Is intentional about serving others and loving others. And doing good to everyone and anyone we come across. That's what a priest does. The priest offers the praise of their lips and the works of their hands to God. So a priest is someone, regardless if they're in work or school or community, is a visible ambassador. A priest is someone who offers the praise of their lips and the works of their hands. And here's the third thing that a priest does. A priest deals with sin. A priest deals with sin, you know, in the times of the Old Testament. The Jewish priest was someone who, on behalf of their brothers and their sisters and those in their community, atoned for sin by sacrificing animals on behalf of the people. That's what they did. You and I are called to be people who deal with sin. Notice I'm saying this, deal with sin. We're not called to be people who engage with sin, who acquiesce to sin. No, but we are called to be people who deal with sin. Look at Hebrews 5.1. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. We are a people who are called to be priests. And as priests, we have to get messy with people sometimes. We can't just separate ourselves from the messiness of life. No, we are called to be light in the midst of that messiness. And we're called to be people who expose sin 
and point people to Jesus. That is what a priest does, my friends. So, I got a bottom line for you. The bottom line is a little bit of a tongue twister, but I think it can help you in a memorable way consider what this message is saying. Listen, you are a priest, uniquely placed with a particular purpose to proclaim God's praise. I feel like I'm stuck in a Peter Piper nursery rhyme. <laughs> Let me say it again. You are a priest uniquely placed with a particular purpose to proclaim God's praise. That is who you are. That is what you're called to do. It's not only a calling that I have. It's a calling that all of us have who are in Jesus Christ. Paul says it better than me without a tongue twister. Here's what Paul says in Colossians 3.23. He says, whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters. The church father, Martin Luther, came across a quote from him, and he says this, he says that he implores and insists that all people, tailors, cobblers, stonemasons, carpenters, cooks, innkeepers, farmers, and temporal craftsmen have been consecrated to the work of their trade just as a priest has been to theirs. In other words, he says, it doesn't matter what your profession is. It doesn't matter where you work. It doesn't matter what school you're a part of. It doesn't, doesn't matter which community you live in. You're all priests. You've been consecrated. You've been installed by God to be a priest out in the world. So let me get very, very concrete with you and practical. I'm going to give you very quickly three rules. Three rules that can help guide anyone, whether it's in the workplace or the school or in the community, in terms of engaging people as a priest, living a life of worship outside the box. Here's rule number one. Discover your personal purpose and pursue it with excellence. Discover your purpose and pursue it with excellence. Look, what are you called to? We would love to help you with that in the church. You should do that thing with excellence. You should do it with the, by doing a really good job, whatever you're called to do, to be faithful, to be someone who can be counted on. Do you find yourself cutting corners at work? Do you find yourself slacking in school? Do you find yourself cheating the process in some way? If you are, that is not what a priest is called to do. A priest is called to be someone who does what they do with excellence. That is rule number one. Bottom line is this, no one is going to appreciate you as a priest if you don't do what you do with excellence. You're called to that as a people. So the first thing is, whether it's at work, at school, do your job with excellence. Rule number two, care about the people around you. If you're a priest, it's not something where you could just keep that in your heart and your own mind. You are called to care about the people who are surrounding you. That's what a priest does. You should be someone who's about economic justice. You should be someone who, who practices business ethics and integrity in your school. If you are a priest, you care about other people. So what's that mean practically? Look, send a text to a coworker or a fellow student who's going through a difficult time. If you know someone whose who's family member, relative, is struggling, going through uh, sickness, 
facing death perhaps, you can offer to pray for that person. Tell them our church would love to pray for them. We would love to do that. Or let's take it this. What if you have a boss or a coach or a teacher that you just don't like? Ever have one of those? If there's a boss or a coach or a teacher you are struggling with, here's what you need to do because you're a priest. You should pray for that person. You should regularly commit to saying, I'm going to pray for this boss or this teacher or this coach, this person I struggle with because I am a priest and I am called to care about the people around me. That's rule number two. We care about the people around us. Rule three is this. As a priest, we intentionally blend faith and work together seamlessly. And it's no problem for us. We seamlessly blend faith and work together as a rule when we're a priest. That means evangelism. That means service. And sometimes that means it's less about what we say and more about what we do. You can be a forgiving and gracious person in your workplace. You can be a person who conveys peace in the midst of chaos in your school. You could be a person who displays a hopeful outlook when everything seems to be going bad. You see, as a rule, a priest is someone who intentionally, intentionally is a key word, blends together faith and work. So those are the three rules that I put before you to practice as a person who's called to be a priest. You want to know how to do this? You want to know how you could take this outside of the walls of the church? Three simple ways. Do what you do with excellence. Care about the people around you. And then do this. Intentionally blend your faith and your work together. I wonder this. Would you be willing to look for opportunities to be a priest and take a few of those opportunities during this next week? Look, I know that it's a big deal. We're talking about a radical new lifestyle. And you might wonder where to begin. You can begin by taking one step. Would you take one opportunity even this week to be a priest? A priest looks for opportunities and takes at least some of them. And that's what we're called to do. I want to close with this. You know, here we are on this day of installation in the church. And earlier this morning, we were wearing some garments up here. All the guys who were on stage earlier, we were vested, wearing our, our robes. Well, the Bible talks about priests and robes. In the Old Testament, there's a passage, Exodus 28, that talks about the description of the priestly robes, the robes that priests wore back in the times of the Old Testament. We actually have a rendering drawing what this could have looked like. You should read this passage. It's a long passage, and it describes what these robes look like. A couple of things I want to point out to you. First of all, there were black stones, onyx, on the shoulders of the priest. And on those black, black onyx stones were carved the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Six on one shoulder, six on the other. The priest had those affixed to their garments. Not only that, the priest had on their breast precious stones, gems, 12 of them. There were four rows, three stones each across. Each, of course, representing again the 12 tribes of Israel. And any time the priest would go into the Holy of Holies, 
would go into the temple. He would be wearing his priestly garments with these stones on his shoulders, these black stones, and these precious gems on his heart. And he would do the work of the priest. You know, this points to who Jesus is. Because what has Jesus done? Jesus has borne the weight of sin, the blackness of it all. He faced death. He bore that on his shoulders. Jesus Christ, the ultimate high priest, has carried the weight of sins, the sins of the people on his shoulders, has he not? Not only that, Jesus on the cross held dearly over his heart his people. I wonder this, did Jesus have specific names, maybe names of families, names of people individually on his heart as he did the priestly duties of the Savior and offered himself as a sacrifice for us on Calvary? Jesus is the ultimate priest. He is the one who's bore sins and he carries you and I precious on his heart before God. He intercedes in our behalf. Do you see it? And what are we called to do? We're called to be people who put on the same priestly garment in a way that we love people where, well, and willing to engage in the messiness of life with them because we are called to be priests. I'll close with one verse. This is Hebrews chapter 4. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, that's Jesus, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We profess. If you profess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, my friends, you are called to be a priest. And that means you are called to live out a life of worship and of faith, not in cozy corners, not in a way that expresses domination and conquest, but as a priest who offers up his life to live for God so that many, many will be reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. That is your call. Wouldn't it be amazing if Christ church wasn't known for having an incredibly great rector historically like John Guest, or for having a great pastoral staff in the present, but having a whole slew of people who live as priests in the world around them. And that includes your workplace and your school and everywhere you go. Are you with me on this? This is the future of the church. This is what we're called to be. Let us be a people who are a royal priesthood. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus, who is the one who's bore our sin on his shoulders, on the cross. Thank you for Jesus who carries us as precious before your throne, God. Because of Jesus, we have hope. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to welcome in a new season in the life of the church. And Father, this isn't a day to single out one pastor, but many. And I pray, God, that Christ Church at Grove Farm would be known for having many, many pastors, many priests, a royal priesthood of believers, people who are engaging with their neighbors in the workplace, in school, wherever they go. Would you strengthen us to that end, God? Father, we love you. We're so grateful 
for Jesus, and it's our desire to live together for him so that your name will be glorified here in the city of Pittsburgh and all around the world. God, we love you. Teach us to live this way by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.